0: This is ContraZoom, a live-in-limbo production.
1: This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and on today we have a very special episode... Listing the top films of 2018. Now you might be asking, why the hell are you finally coming out with this episode near the end of March? And for that, I'll say, why are you so impatient? But mostly, the real reasoning behind that is uh, every year, as, as I'm sure a lot of you probably know, regular listeners know, I do try to watch literally every single Oscar-nominated movie, and... I'm not saying that the Oscar-nominated films automatically mean that they are better than other films. What it does allow me to do is catch up with a bunch of things I might have missed. Like, I know I wanted to see Roma either way, but uh, some of the foreign films I probably wouldn't have heard of, or the documentaries, or the shorts without seeing them being nominated for different Oscars. So having that allowed me to really catch everything. The Oscars were last month, and ever since they ended, I've basically been prepping my list in this episode. Um, So in the end, I watched 52 movies last year. So basically one a week, although I would say probably more than half of them came from December to the end of February, which is kind of crazy. Joining me in this fun little adventure of a top 10 list is Stephanie Pryor, who has been on ContraZoom several times before. Thank you for joining me today, Steph. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're, we're gonna have a, a, a real good time talking about our favorite films of last year. Uh, we've got several great, uh, voice memos sent in by, by different people, different friends of the podcast, which is gonna be great to hear what their number one movie of the year was. Uh, we're gonna talk each about ten films we really love. And the great thing is we only have three overlapping films, uh, which I think is a good mix. So before we start this countdown, uh I think it's best to kind of get some information out in the air. Obviously, you know, someone's going to listen and go, "Why didn't you include this? Why didn't you include that?" Unfortunately, we didn't see everything. So I think we both have a, a short list of movies that uh we we wanted to see. Uh, and if we did see them, not that they would have made our top 10, but they probably would have been in consideration for the top 10, at least ones that look like we want. We would probably enjoy. So, so what did you have for ones that you would wish you had caught up with before we did this list?
2: Um, okay, so this is one that I was actually nominated for Best Animated uh, Feature this year, um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. I'm not a big comic book fan whether animated a live action, sorry, Marvel fans.
1: Other than Batman.
2: Other than Batman, the Dark Knight series, I should <laughs> um, But aside from that, uh, I did not want to see it and I, I kinda told you go see it. I don't don't wait for me because I wasn't interested. But because of all the praise it's been getting and all the rave reviews and what everyone's been saying, I kinda wish that I had gone and seen it because I feel like it's something that I've definitely missed out on. So that is one that I missed and that I wish that I had had checked into, because who knows if it would have made my top ten, but I feel like I should have given it a shot.
1: I'm not going to say anything about that movie yet. Yet. Hint, hint. <laughs> uh,
2: I know this is one that we both kind of wanted to see was Widows. Uh, that was kind of on our blind spot for the past year. Uh, Steve McQueen's follow-up. Uh Just seemed like a very uh heavy-hitting cast. You know, lots of good leading ladies that we were... Interested in he's never caught up on.
1: It was one that, leading up to it, I expected it to be a major player. Maybe not necessarily in awards consideration, but definitely, you know, Steve McQueen, after 12 years of slave, what's he going to do? Everyone's going to be really interested and thought it would be a big deal. And it just kind of fizzled out really quickly and not in a bad way. Just it seemed like no one saw yeah, it. Yeah,
2: There was there was no buzz about it.
1: Um, yeah, it seemed like critics were, I don't want to say divide it. I think a lot of them really enjoyed it. And then a bunch of them were just sort of ambivalent about it. Mm -hmm. Like, eh, it wasn't bad. Like I've definitely seen worse heist movies, but there were, there were certain level of expectations of a McQueen film.
2: Right, right. Uh, some other ones that I missed out on was Leave No Trace. I really wanted to see. Uh that one with Ben Foster kind of living off the grid with his daughter sounded sounded like something interesting. That's something I'd be, you know, down for seeing. And I really enjoy Ben Foster's acting and his roles that he chooses. So I feel like that would have been a good one to have seen that could have made my list. And then Private Life uh, with Katherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti. Love both of them especially Catherine Hahn, So I feel like that would have been a really good dark comedy, which is kind of more my genre, which is kind of what I like to lean towards is like dysfunctional family storyline. So I think that's one that I will definitely be checking out in the very near future.
1: Yeah. I can, I can easily see if you had seen that movie yeah. cracking, probably your top five.
2: <laughs> yeah. Most likely I wouldn't, I won't, would, I won't go into top five, but cause I don't know. Yeah. Cause with those genres, I That genre in particular I feel can go like both ways. It's either like really good and really hard hitting or it could just be a complete flop. So
1: based on the praise it got, I can, I can probably see you would have really enjoyed it. Yeah. (laughs) Leave No Trace is one I wish I'd seen as well. That was Deborah Granick's follow up to Winter's Bone. She hadn't made a movie since Winter's Bone, which is shocking because that's known as the film that launched Jennifer Lawrence's career and J Laws had this huge basically career arc as an up-and-comer to an A-list or to now one that's some people are a little bit tired of, who, you know, depending on whatever you think of her, whereas Granick hasn't done anything in that whole time, where Lawrence has basically had an entire career. She's had, what, like three, four Oscar nominations since then, a win? It's insane that it took Granick this long to follow it up. I don't know why. I don't know if it was because she was waiting for the right project, wanted to develop something over a long period of time, or if it was just an unfortunate issue of female directors not getting the, the, the due that they are deserved. Um, especially after such a, a terrific film like winter's bone that I really loved. Um, for my list, I, I I'm trying, I'm going to say some films that you didn't mention because, uh, I wish I'd seen all of those as well. I hadn't seen them either, except for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for me, uh, the South Korean film Burning, uh, starring Steven Yuan, uh, I really wish I'd seen that. Uh, Zama, the Lucretia Martel film, um, about, um, a colonist living in Argentina, I believe, uh, wishing he wasn't there. Uh, The Rider. The Chloe Zhao movie that seemed really interesting. Uh, the documentary Tea with the Dames about four British ladies that, uh, gather to have a uh, tea that starred, uh, Maggie Smith and, uh, Judy Dench and, and two other dames as well. Uh, the Ethan Hawke-directed film Blaze about uh, a country singer, Um, and then, of course, the ones that you had mentioned as well. So just trying to get a, a wide variety of different movies that we did not end up seeing
2: yeah so sorry for all of you who if you did see those in a major top ten
1: yeah i i am i'm I'm sure the the probably the biggest one for me that people are probably gonna chastise not being on the list is burning. I know a lot of people that saw that really fell hard for it um and so i I was tempted to to catch up with it right before we recorded this, but it was like a two and a half hour movie and
2: That counts me out.
1: (laughs) Yeah, basically. Um, Not that long movies are necessarily bad movies. It's just hard to dedicate that time when I'm doing my last-minute cramming. Um, So, like I mentioned at the top of the show, we are going to have some great guest voicemails come and talk about what their number one movie of the year is. And we are going to start off with Sean Chin and what was his number one film of the year.
0: Hey, this is Sean Chin from Live in Limbo, my favorite film of 2018 with the sports documentary Free Solo featuring rock climber Alex Honnold, directed by Jimmy Chin. This was a great film as I'm into all these sports, and he's really, really inspiring. It's a truly breathtaking film, and you just got to watch it.
1: I really liked free solo uh we're gonna talk about it in a bit later um but we're going to get right into our countdown now so coming in at number ten what was your film?
2: okay I'll kick it off uh, my number ten was David Mackenzie's outlaw King so this is uh kind of like a sequel to Braveheart not not directly so but it takes place right after where Braveheart kind of leads off not or ends off not that i've seen braveheart in many very many years but uh this is following uh robert the bruce's big rebellion he's a he's cast as an outlaw and this is his fight to to kind of gain
1: independence for the scots yeah Yeah. as
2: all scottish movies are (laughs) let's face it so and this stars chris pine Uh, who I think, uh, was great in it, for sure. I think all the performances in this film was, were pretty terrific. Uh, my standout performance was actually, uh, Aaron Tyler Johnson. I thought his portrayal of James Douglas was actually really good and believable and I was just on his side the entire time. From the minute you saw him like kneel and like take his sword out and put (laughs) it in front of him and like, I thought it was great. But also, uh, I didn't really think anything much about this movie going into it? Cause like historical battle films really aren't.
1: This is one that you pity watched with me.
2: Yeah. I mean, I was interested in it because it looked good and it's, well, I mean, it's a Netflix film, which you can either go, well, Ooh, this could be bad or, you know, Oh, it's great. It's going to be great. So you, you never really know. So I was still intrigued. Um, but I thought there was a really good balance of battle scenes and character development and like backstory. It wasn't all just about the battles, and I know that you kind of had an issue with the battle scenes themselves. I, I didn't really take notice about it, but I just thought the film overall was really good. And what like brought it together was, was that pacing and that kind of editing and the cinematography was just beautiful. Like I just wanted to be where they were pretty much. And I love the scenes where they were in the forest kind of doing their little night festival things with all, it was just lit by firelight and everyone's glowing and it's beautiful and very like almost fantasy like, but it's still grounded in of course this historical event. So I just thought it was really beautifully shot and, and that the initial thing actually that hooked me, which I should have started off with because the movie did was that extended long single shot take that starts in the tent and comes out of the tent and there's like a little mini duel that happens and then you're back in the tent and then you're back outside the tent and you see this big giant catapult thing take off. And it's just like a really well done. You're like, wow, is this still the one take you're really shocked, but it doesn't feel long and boring, and like drawn out. It feels exactly how it should. Yeah. So this is why is out walking was my number 10. I enjoyed it. Uh, cinematically, I found it entertaining. I thought the performances were great, and it was just a beautiful film to
1: watch. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree. I, I really enjoyed it, too. Um, I, I think we'd be remiss not to also mention the performance of Florence Pugh. Yes, yes. Who I thought really carried a lot of the non-machoism fighting stuff. For sure, stuff. yep. There's some, they, they, their scenes together, she plays the wife, Chris Pine, their scenes were basically like the plotting. Uh, where they they try to figure out what to do next, what, what's their next step, what's their next move, everything that's going on, and they do a really good job, sort of scheming together, and it's it's really believable, and they have a really good relationship. Um, that was a lot a lot of fun to see them together. They do really yeah. good chemistry, and mm-hmm. like you were talking about Taylor Johnson, he was fantastic. You know, he's great at playing these really crazy unchained characters who. Literally, when you see him at one point in the movie, he's, like, frothing at the mouth. Yeah. But then he also, you're like, oh, yeah, Aaron Taylor, Taylor Johnson playing the crazy guy. Of course he is, the psycho. But he actually has, like, some real moments of, like, nice humility and calmness. Yeah. And, and and some humor as well. Which, like, it, it's, I know he's capable of all that stuff, but bringing them all together in one performance is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um so moving on to my number ten was the Boots Riley film Sorry to Bother You. It was Riley's debut film. He is previously known as the frontman um of a of a hip hop group. And this movie has been a passion project of his for years. He'd been working on this script forever and ever and ever. And it basically combines every single sociopolitical topic that we've kind of been going through as a society in the last like 10, 15 years, everything from, uh, the concerns of minority races to capitalism, to the housing market, to the tech industries, to like, I, I, I can't even say all this things that this movie covers because it literally covers it all. Unfortunately, that's also a bit of its downfall. As much as I love how ambitious it is, it's a little too ambitious at times where you just kind of it sort of throws in some elements where you're like cool, yeah, I like where you're going with this and then it doesn't really go anywhere. It just sort of is brought up for the sake of being brought up uh, and, and that sort of hinders the film a little bit. But this film is so inventive. Everyone knows this movie as uh, Lakeith Stanfield, who, who most people know in Atlanta, uh, putting on a white voice, which isn't your, you know, as they say in the film, not your Will Smith white voice, your actual white voice, which uh, between Stanfield and, and Danny Glover, their white voices are um, um, oh, oh shoot, I'm forgetting his name from Arrested Development um, yeah, it's
0: uh,
1: Tobias from Arrest Development uh, David Cross that, yeah. and Patton Oswalt yeah. are the white voices, which when you think about how white of a voice can you get? Those are two pretty good voices to cast as that. Uh, now if you haven't seen this movie, I'm not gonna spoil this because sure the conceit of the film is they put on white voices and it's not quite an alternate reality. It's not, it's, it's grounded in, in the world we live in with the issues we face today with a bit of a spin to it. Not so much that you don't believe everything, but enough that it is clearly It's clearly not our world, but this film takes a turn that if you haven't seen, I can't say, and it is so unbelievable and shocking and out there that for Riley to even dare to put this on screen earns... The ten spot on my list on that alone. Lakeith Sandfield delivers a phenomenal performance, um, and and totally buys into this world that Riley has created.
2: Yeah, uh, I didn't like this film as much as you did. I did do agree that Lakeith Sanfield's performance was pretty great. Uh one of my qualms with the film was that I didn't find a lot of the characters very likable, so I couldn't really extend my sympathies to them in, in any particular situation or root from them at any given point in time also i found the pacing was kind of off a little bit because sometimes i found that it dragged and just wished that it would get on to what it was going at that could be a whole like jamming too many things in at once like
1: yeah you know, it, it definitely getting a little kind of muddied
2: is. so you know you don't know where you're supposed to be at but i mean i did enjoy the film and yeah it got weird
1: yeah, it gets real weird. <laughs> <I'll> say that. <laughs> That's weird. Uh, alright, uh, what is your number nine film?
2: Okay, number nine. Um, Hugh, I won't even say Huge Bias, but just, when you say Wes Anderson, I'm gonna be there in that theater watching that film. Of course I didn't see this film actually in the theater, but no. <laughs> I will pay money to see any Wes Anderson film. You don't even have to tell me what it's about. But when I heard that it's stop motion, you have me there and I'm, I'm in love with it already. And it's about dogs, so who can hate a movie that's Wes Anderson, stop motion, and dogs?
1: I love dogs.
2: Ah, oh, very funny. <laughs> so yes, that brings me to the title of the film. I love dogs is my number nine film, uh, which follows, uh, a, a Japanese boy trying to find his last dog after all the dogs have been exiled, banished to this, uh, this island because of a, a dog flu? Mm-hmm. Dog virus? That's sweeping across Japan. So, apart from the voiceovers and all the great actors that they got for the voices of these dogs and characters, I thought this film was just a fun, adventurous, really hilarious, real movie. I know a lot of people had different issues with it and there was kind of some controversy over, you know, stereotypes and racism and blah blah blah, but I just thought it was kind of like a a nice love story to the culture of Japan and, like, incorporating that into the story. I mean, you could have set the story anywhere, and I like that it was set somewhere else and that it kind of paid homage to that sushi scene where they're making mm-hmm. sushi. I thought that was great and amazing, and they really took the time the detail to focus on these different cultural aspects. So I really appreciated that. I thought it was great. It's just a fun film, and just the way that they they portrayed the dogs and the the script for it was just hilarious. Mm -hmm. So I just really enjoyed it, and that's why it's my number nine.
1: That score for me was... Probably my Great favorite score, score of the year score. Yeah. With, uh, with the traditional Japanese drumming mm-hmm. that they use, which is definitely an homage to Akira Kurosawa. You, there's a lot of those samurai film influences on this movie, which is, is really cool to see. That's something I've been getting into and watching a lot of in the last couple of years. That, that was cool to see. Um, yeah, as... A huge fan of Anderson myself. Uh I do prefer Fantastic Mr. Fox. I do think it is a slightly superior film. And I say that because it's my favorite Anderson film. <laughs> Seeing this is, is definitely great that stop motion works so well with Anderson's sensibilities that I, I hope he does do another one again in a few years. Obviously, it takes so much longer to to make these films with just how particular... Anderson is, which, you know, particular is really the only way to describe Anderson's directorial style. Um, so hopefully this isn't the last time we, we we see a stop motion film from him. I, really I do hope yeah. we get one in the future. Yeah. Uh, my number nine was actually one of the last films I saw before recording this podcast. And that was David Lowery's Old Man in the Gun. His last film, A Ghost Story, was actually my number one film of last year. Was that last year? Last year. Last year. (laughs) Um, I absolutely adored that film and the way that Lowry decided to meditate on the meaning of life and death. And I think he sort of does something a little bit similar in this film. It's Robert Redford's supposedly last film. He is supposedly retiring um, very few times do actors say they're retiring or actually do. Sean Connery being one of them that actually has stayed retired since he left after the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, and, and Redford says that this is it. And if it is, what a great way to go out. He, he plays basically what would happen if Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, lived. But actually was alive in the 60s up until now and was a bank robber. And he's got this really adorable little bank robber group mm-hmm. with um, with Tom Waits and Danny Glover. Again, mm-hmm. doing uh, two great performances this year, showing up in small supporting roles in Sissy Spacek as his you're not really sure if it's love interest or female companion, female companion. <laughs> yeah. uh they they definitely have a really great chemistry and relationship between um, the two yeah. of them and they and they do a great job and this film has a bit of a like grainy sepia tint to it as well so you just can't it's 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 one of those movies that is pretty feel-good. The whole time, you're rooting for Robert Redford to just rob another bank. And, you know, you you just go to every witness interview that these bank tellers tell to the police after they get robbed is, oh, but he was so charming, you know, I, I just had to give him the money. And watching this movie, you feel the exact same way. You're like, he is just that charming. Which basically is just like, robert redford the movie because he is so charming and i i think this movie works as well as it does because you have someone as charismatic and charming and as comforting as a personality as redford and and so i'm really glad i ended up catching up with this movie before the list
2: yeah it's a quieter film but it's very sweet super endearing and i enjoyed it too
1: it's an easy fun watch it's one of those movies where like Oh, I'm with some people. We don't know what to watch. We don't want something too heavy. Throw an old man the gun. You will not be disappointed. Yeah. Um, All right. Now, coming in in your eighth spot, what do you have?
2: Okay. So I have Bo Burnham's eighth grade. I have one question for you, Dakota. How does a 28-year-old man get the feelings and emotions of a 13-year-old girl extremely right?
1: Uh, I guess if you spend enough time... On social media, which why was Bo Burnham spending so much time on social media? <laughs>
2: we'll, we'll pass on that one. Uh,
1: if he spent enough time on Snapchat, I'm sure he probably could have figured out what makes teenagers tick.
2: <laughs> I was boggled by this film and like emotionally hit. It's it is awkward. It's beautiful. It's endearing. It's cringeworthy, and it's it's just such a true depiction of what. I can attest to as being a 13-year-old girl. And I, when I grew up, I didn't have social media. Obviously, it was a different time. But just the feelings are still real. And so that's why I related so well to this film. And not a lot of movies make me cry, but three of my top ten movies this year or past year made me cry. I have a little C next to my notes (laughs) to note that. But I thought the characters were so true and so authentic and um The girl who played Kayla, Elsie Fisher, did such a great job. She was so amazing and believable. And just the emotions that you read on her face were like all that I needed for that film. I thought her dad did such a great job too. Uh, Josh Hamilton, is that what his name was? And uh, The baseball player? Yeah, exactly. No, not (laughs) not the same guy. But uh, I thought it was just a beautiful film and the relationships between her and her father and her and and the high school friend that she made and that horrible, awkward scene with when she's alone in the car with that guy. And it was just all too real, all too fresh, which is funny being a 28 year old woman myself. Like I'm far away from 13, but it still felt like yesterday. And it brought me back to those times where you just feel awkward or you feel alone or you feel like you wish you were loved more or, or you wish you had more attention, but you don't want the attention. It's so complicated and just, i was I was just so taken by this film, and I wanted to go back and rewatch it, but I couldn't because it was going to be too awkward
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think what's what's most fascinating is everyone is rightly praising burnham's ability to to sort of nail this type of teenager going through life, uh which is obviously very relatable not just for for girls but also for for boys as well when they're trying to just figure out their place in the world mm-hmm. uh, at at such a it cross-section age where you're, you're not, you're no longer a child, you're not an adult yet, but you're trying to figure out who you want to be a, as an adult. Uh, but I think most fascinating, apart from getting th- th- this character of Kayla so spot on, is how he also got everyone around yeah. that, uh, depicted so painfully accurate. Uh, you, you know, you talk about Different f- movies where they have such a great, fully realized lead performance or lead character, well-written, well-acted, everything like that. Uh, sometimes you have more caricatures uh, or barely drawn-out, uh, fleshed-out characters on the periphery. Mm-hmm. Or this, you know, you, you have the a single dad who's just... Doing his best to to be there for his daughter and trying to be not necessarily the cool dad, but the the understanding dad, yeah. the fun dad, the, the one that that's there for his daughter. Or Girls that are also kind of going through the same issues, but from a different lens that, you know, the popular girls, they're still having their own issues as well. Or boys in this age range, a little bit older, how they're yeah. all acting. Like everything about all these characters felt very real and very realized as well. In, in Bo Burnham's yeah. mind, his <laughs> his direction was so solid in bringing all of this to life that it, it's remarkably Fantastic, and and considering for for people that have known his stand up for years, I don't think anyone would have expected this movie from him.
2: Yeah, yeah, I was totally surprised. I, we were we had listened to a podcast together where he had been interviewed for Eighth Grade, and it made me interested to watch some of his stand up. This was before I watched Eighth Grade myself, and so I watched his stand up, and I was like, oh, okay, this is inter- this isn't what I thought his stand up would be. Just hearing the. Interview about 8th grade. And then when we watched 8th grade, I was like, I am so confused as to who this man is. <laughs> but like, I said it. It's great. And it's amazing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it would definitely be interesting to see what he does next.
2: Yeah, I'm excited.
1: Um, so, yeah, go Bo Burnham. Uh, <laughs> my number eight is the documentary Minding the Gap, directed by Bing Liu, where he interviews basically two of his uh friends from growing up, all skateboarding guys. And the the reveal of the film is uh all three of them suffered uh different forms of abuse mostly from their father figures in their lives and how that has affected who they are as they have grown up to be young men. Um What I think this movie does beautifully is it shoots these great skateboarding sequences in Rockford, Illinois, and uses them not just to show what sort of skateboarding cinematography can be done or the cool tricks that these guys do, but it really does a great way of cross-cutting The emotions, you know, there'll be an interview with one of the friends talking about how the abuse that they suffered when they looked at their father wrong and said the wrong thing when they were growing up and they would get hit. And then you cross cut to skateboarding and you see how it brings them joy or when they're angry and they're frustrated and they're not nailing the tricks that they're trying to nail and they're taking their rage out on their skateboard by smashing it. They're not, you, you understand where all of those emotions come from. Everything about the skateboarding is influenced by who they are as people. Now, when I I talk about this movie to other people, I preface it by saying, yes, it's a skateboard movie documentary, but it's not, it really isn't. And like, while skateboarding definitely takes up a large check section of this film, this movie is not a skateboarding film, um, All three young men, the third one being the director, Bing, who we don't quite learn right away how he connects to the other two boys other than just being their friends until later on. And when it does, it kind of brings everything really full circle. It's, It's really interesting how he narratively edits this film together. Frankly, I was, I was very disappointed that this movie did not get nominated for editing at the Oscars because the way that he is able to edit the different interview sequences to just footage of these boys hanging out to footage of them skateboarding, it's absolutely phenomenal and, and I'm really excited to see what else Bing does. Um, in the future, whether it's more documentaries or if it will be more in the narrative field. We don't know yet. He hasn't really announced anything, uh, but it's definitely something I'm excited to see. Uh, I know you have lots of thoughts about this too, but as I mentioned at the top of the show, we do have three overlapping mm-hmm. picks, and uh, we might be hearing more about that one later, won't we? Yeah. Okay.
2: Quite possibly.
1: <laughs> what was your number seven film then?
2: Okay, my number seven film is the favorite, Yergo Um What can I say about this film that made me love it the most? Script. Oh my god, I love this script so much. Uh, just the wit and the banter between all three of these ladies, no matter who was on screen, was what I was living for in this movie. Um, I thought each character was so realized and so individual that like, the way that they were able to hold a conversation between each other and still somehow managed to be, I felt like no one was truly like the leading lady in this film. They were all like equally heavy hitters and just the way that they played back and forth was super awesome. I love how strong each of them were in their own way and how weak and vulnerable they were in their own way. So that was truly amazing. And yeah, three giant leading ladies I can't fault that. Fault
1: I think at the that. end of the Oscars, you were probably happiest that Olivia was won hers. I was so
2: stoked! Yeah. Like I know people were angry or like really shocked, but I was so happy. And then of course her acceptance speech, b- without getting into an Oscars rant, was just <laughs> the, the most endearing thing I've ever seen, like for a long time. But back to the favorite. Uh, apart from the script, the production design, the costumes, it was all just like perfect, and just made this. Really great film that, you know, was entertaining and deep and thoughtful and funny. Like, it was also just funny in, like, this weird, dark way. But that's Yarrgos Lanthimos for you.
1: I think what's funniest about all this is this is probably going to be Lanthimos's mainstream yeah. film. And if you watch this movie, it's not really a mainstream film at all. Yeah,
2: just... I just love this I this was a more of a a, a creeper for me. I watched the film, I enjoyed it, and I was like, yeah, that was pretty good. and then the more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, that was that was really good about it and then I kept thinking about it and I was like, yeah, like Rachel Vice was amazing in that. And I was like, oh wait, no. like, like Coleman was amazing in that. Yeah, Stone was amazing. The more I thought about it, the more it sat with me, the more it resonated and grew, and that's why it's landed at number seven for me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely a fantastic film. Um, and, and much like after The Lobster, I never, I haven't seen Killing of a Sacred Deer much after that one. It's, you're left with just being like, what will he do next? What will Nancy Most do next? Because he, he's just so crazy and unique. And even when things don't work in his films, he's at least doing something so original that you will literally have never seen and probably will never see again.
2: Yeah, and I just have to say, like, because I saw The Lobster as well. I'm glad this one ended a little differently, where I didn't feel like so torn and depressed about it. So <laughs> I'm glad this, <laughs> that this ended on not a happier note by any means, but you know, a different sad note.
1: It's interesting that you you kind of bring that up because despite the terrible ending of The Lobster, wherever you sort of fall on the way it ends, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, you should definitely go and see it, but I'm not going to talk about how it ends. Arguably, the action that Colin Farrow does or does not do at the end of The Lobster, it's out of love and happiness, whereas the ending of The Favourite, is much more malicious of an ending (laughs) despite it being a more uplift
0: easier (laughs) ending to watch easier
1: easier easier yeah (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that that would probably be the way to describe it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh all right. Um coming in number seven for me is Spike Lee's Black Klansman. Uh this was a powerhouse of a film for people most people know Spike Lee as the the guy in the Knicks gear at the Knicks home games. Uh if you if you obviously haven't seen such films like Do the Right Thing or Malcolm X. Or 25th Hour, or Inside Man, or Bamboozled, or, or many one of his other many great classics that he has done. Um, uh, personally, I don't think Spike Lee has made a truly great film since Inside Man, and, and that was about a decade ago now. He's the type of director where you need, he needs everything to go right for him. He will throw everything against the wall, and Refuse to budge on any of his ideas, and sometimes it means that it sucks, and sometimes you get a masterpiece like Black Klansmen. Uh, The two lead performances from John David Washington and Adam Driver uh, as a black and Jewish cop in Colorado Springs, both pretending to be a white Aryan man to infiltrate the Ku Klux Klan, they, the two of them together work so well and they reveal so many issues that take place in the, when does this movie take place? In so the 70s, I believe it is. 60s or, 60s or 70s. 60s or 70s. I can't remember exactly. I probably should have looked that up. Uh, during the uh, Black Panther movement that was going on, so much happens that we go, this was 40, almost 50 years ago. This is the past. This is, this is the way we don't see cross burnings anymore. We don't see white power chants. We, we don't feel the need that black people should be afraid of going out alone. Um, and then this movie all sort of comes to a head and you realize this movie isn't about 50 years ago. This movie is about today and this movie is needed today still. Um Spike Lee very bravely inserts footage from the Charlottesville uh, white supremacist rally that was held that unfortunately ended with a counter protester, Heather Hare, who was struck by a car that drove into a crowd of protesters where she unfortunately died Um and you realize just how topical this film is because as much as things changed, nothing really has changed as sad as that really is. Uh, you get some really great performances from Topher Grace as well. We all laughed at the idea of the guy from that 70s show who was a smarmy little whiny douche basically uh, being given the role of the KKK grandmaster and sure he kind of has a bit of that smurminess as well. He's kind of charming and you understand how a person like that succeeds and is able to deftly navigate the real world politics where his hatred while still very much present, he is able to let that simmer just below everything So that way he has focus and energy to point in the right directions. And truly, that's what makes him such a terrifying villain in this story is the fact that he is sort of likable during moments when he's not spewing racial hatred. But, um, everything about this movie is fantastic. The editing, the soundtrack, the performances, the directing, the cinematography. It's, we've got the classic Spike Lee dolly shot. Um, everything in this movie is, is definitely vintage Spike that he he easily could have made in the late 80s, early 90s, starring someone like, I don't know, Denzel Washington as the lead. Uh, instead, he makes the movie today with his son, and this movie is just as powerful uh, as it would have been when Do the Right Thing also came out back in the late 80s. This is one you also like, too, isn't it?
2: This was one that I liked, so I won't say too much about it right now.
1: Okay, that's fine with me. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to take a, another quick break. We're going to listen to Scott Murdoch, who some of you probably heard on the Oscar Wrap-Up Podcast. That was Scott's first appearance on the show. Uh, he was kind enough to also contribute to this episode with his number one movie of the year.
0: I'm Scott Murdoch, a not quite as crazed movie fan as Dakota Arsenault. My pick for favorite movie of the year, 2018, is actually Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In a year with a lot of great movies, I mean, we had Roma and Black Klansman and The Favorite and Vice, etc. It was actually Spider-Man that did it for me because it was almost unlike anything I'd seen before. I've got a soft spot for animated features already, and it was great to see a new take in terms of visual and sound and story adaptation on a type of movie that's well-known and well-done by other studios like Disney and Pixar. But finally, we had relatively new blood bringing in a completely new look, and I think we got an actual new level of animated feature for the first time in years. Plus, it was just so damn entertaining. Virtually every friend of the movie, the script and the acting and the directing, was just fresh and new, making it the first time I've walked out of an animated movie going, like, what the hell did I just see? So full points for innovation and moving the animated feature forward.
1: Wow, that was great sound quality, wasn't it? So Scott's favorite film of 2018 was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You mentioned that uh, as one of the movies you had wished you'd seen. Mm -hmm. I saw it. Uh, this is my number six movie of the year. This is a fantastic movie uh, written by Phil Lord and Christopher Miller, who were uh, unceremoniously fired halfway through the filming of Solo, leaving it to be a big what-if of what have happened. Also known for directing the Lego movie and uh, the 21 Jump Street movies as well the last couple of years. These guys are awesome. Their sensibilities are all over this film. But more importantly... I don't think we've seen a film so mu- that looks so much like a comic book ever. Uh, you get the feel and the texture of comic books. We get the pointillism style artwork in some of it. You get uh, the insert shots that you get with certain panels. Everything about this is great. Plus, it is just a really moving film about a kid trying to find his way in the world in... That is constantly changing. You know, this isn't the the nerdy loser Peter Parker we're used to seeing in Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield movies. This is Miles Morales, who is much more cool and calm and has a vision of who he thinks he is while he is that he is still also spider-man which brings a lot of the sensibilities that we know from the classic spider-man they they still show the radioactive spider bite but they do it in such a unique fun way that really incorporates uh the best of both worlds of of having your cake and eating it too this movie is so new york as well it incorporates graffiti art and hip-hop and breakdancing and tagging and, and everything else that, you know, people really love about the history and feel of New York into a really good film. And you know, the the voice performances are fantastic in this as well. You get some really cool smaller uh bit parts done by Nicolas Cage and John Mulaney. You also get some uh really good stuff from Brian Tyree Henry and Mahershala Ali. This this film is absolutely stacked with talented voice actors and everything about this comes together into, uh, frankly, pretty emotional climax uh, that you can't help but fall in love with. And so I know it was your your honorable mention, uh, no, you know, not your honorable mention, the yes. film that you regret that you, you didn't see. I hope you do watch and I hope you, you loved it as much as both myself and Scott did.
2: Mm-hmm. If there's any any redeeming quality, I'm a huge John Mulaney fan. So I'll watch it just for him.
1: There anyway. you go. You got, you got to see the spider yeah. Uh So what was your number six movie?
2: Okay, I might get in some deep water here, but you know what? I'm going to borrow from Dick Cheney himself and be unapologetic about this one. <laughs> uh, my number six is Vice, Adam McKay. Uh, I'm s- not sorry. I was going to say unapologetic about this one. So I just genuinely enjoyed this film. I really like the style um, of directing and editing that like Adam McKay brings to his films much like the big short with all the, the cuts and the, the way everything's kinda of set up. I just enjoy it. I like that. I love how things are are broken down for, you know, someone who's not heavy into the politics like I like like me, or who may not understand all the the crazy in depth lingo and jargon and things that are happening or that have happened. So I appreciate breaking it down for just someone like straight off the street. And it was just like apart from being a huge Christian Bale fan, uh just really well done, I thought, and I know a lot of people had a lot of issues with it, but um I loved the style, I loved the editing, I loved the performances, and I just, you know, it was it was just entertaining for me. So I mean I'm sorry I can't say more about why I like this film, but I just did. So it it made it up pretty high number
1: six it it was one i I found fun as well i I preferred the big short to this so do i um and, and it, i think it definitely has a lot of really cool stuff going on a lot of the things that if you love the big short, you definitely would notice a lot of things that he brings to this as well some some clever editing in, including the a great bit about and Dick Cheney retired and lived happily and peacefully with his okay. family and never yeah. get involved in politics ever again. And they literally run the credits of the movie, the entire movie up to that point of all the performances and people that work behind the scenes actually. And then halfway through, it's basically like a psych. Yeah. That's not what happened. <laughs> uh, there, there's a lot of clever little jokes like that that really helped tell the story. So my number five film is First Reform, the Paul Schrader film. Most people know Schrader as the writer of such Scorsese hits like Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. But he's also a pretty prolific director on his own right. This movie works as well as it does because of Ethan Hawke's performance. Hawke has... Always been someone that's been a little bit divisive by people, but I feel like in the last five years there's been a, a real reappraisal of his abilities, and I think people are recognizing him as one of the best actor working actors of this generation, and and this might be one of his crowning achievements as far as just such purely great acting going on as a conflicted priest dealing with a parishioner who is worried about bringing a child into the world with all of the environmental issues that we are facing today regarding climate change and the like and this film wrestles with some really heady topics as far as the role religion should be playing in this modern world whether or not And I think, frankly, the the parishioner's idea of bringing a child into this world, not just for environmental causes, but for everything else going on. Like, we live in a world where wages are stagnating. The the top 1% is growing richer and richer, while the other 99% of the world is getting poorer and poorer. I may never own a house in my life. How... Uh, smart is it to bring a child into the world who I know will probably make less money than I do and also never be able to have a house and will have to literally rent everything that they want because of the way consumerism is changing and the weather is going to shit and half the world might be flooded and sunken and underwater in 20 to 50 years. How responsible of a parent would I be if I did that? And so I think this movie really gets you to wrestle with some important subject matter that I think really does need to be wrestled with. Unfortunately, due to the subject matter, it's not one that will be widely seen by a lot of people as there are some really good moments in this film. Uh, a local oil and gas guy is basically the main sponsor of the main church that uh, Ethan Hawke sort of works for as a subsidiary. And they get into a fight about the role that corporations play in modern religion. And, you know, the same can be said about the movie industry or basically any industry where you're looking at. So it's the type of movie that will probably be a cult favorite very quickly, but not one that a lot of people have seen uh, widely and really this movie starts and ends with a fantastic performance by Ethan Hawke. But I think what was most interesting is I think the best movies, no matter the quality of them at the end of it, when you watch them with someone, you have a debate and we watched this movie together. And at the end of it, we probably talked for about an hour about the themes of this movie. Mm-hmm. And it's probably been a long time since we've had uh, such a passionate debate about a film like we did during this one.
2: Yeah. Yeah, this film was very... It's a thinker, you know, it makes you think. And uh, Ethan Hawke's performance is just brilliant. And I'm a huge Ethan Hawke fan and still am with this film. Like, anything he's in, I will watch. And this, like, just kind of validates my position with that. But also what I enjoyed about this film is that it's not a scary movie, but like it kind of watched like one, like it felt eerie and like something was lurking around the corner. And there was just this sense of like doom on the periphery. You just felt like something was, was gonna happen that was gonna be bad. And it wasn't this big climax or something that, popped out from the closet or under your bed, but it was still like this heavy, deep, scary reality, which was what was creeping around the corner. Like what we're dealing with and living with currently and what is going to be dealt with in the future. So it was kind of brilliant the way that it was filmed. I thought and shot and, uh, it's definitely an honorable mention for me.
1: You know, it's stupid. Me didn't realize until I heard it spoken out loud. You have Ethan Hawke playing this priest, a father figure, religious figure, and the woman that goes to him for help, her name is Mary, and she's pregnant. (laughs) It's one of those things where like, when you hear it spoken out loud in that context, you're like, oh how could I not have noticed that when I was seeing of course like obviously this is a very religious film but like seeing it just so black and white like that the themes yeah. that Schrader is trying to get across it, it's one of those things where you just kind of feel stupid you're like of course I like totally get it but like I didn't put the two and yeah. two together <laughs> Um. with that said uh pointing out my embarrassment of poor movie analyzing what was your number five film Uh,
2: so my number five film was uh Marielle. Heller's uh, "Can You Ever Forgive Me?" starring Melissa McCarthy and Richard E. Grant. I think that the two of these um, actors and characters had such great chemistry. And again, the script—I thought the script was great in this film. The banter between them and just the quips that they kind of throw at each other—they're friendly, but they're also kind of digging. Um, it's just—it's kind of an interesting film. It's about uh, Lee Israel. This—it's based on a true story uh this, you know, kind of down and out author who's kind of past her fifteen minutes of fame and she finds this letter uh from a, a famous author and decides to to get money for it, sell it and gets money for it, and she gets this idea to start forging other letters from other uh famous literary types. And so it's just kind of this intriguing story To see this this character who's kind of on the outs and how she's dealing with it and coming trying to rise above her problems dipping into crime but the the performances were great from both of them and i don't think it's any surprise that melissa mccarthy or richard e grant can knock it out of the park but just them together were super great and super entertaining to watch but they were like as their characters were kind of more closed up and they were, they obviously have walls up, but they were also vulnerable and true and real and just really genuine. So I really enjoyed their performances and appreciated them and just what they brought to the story, which I think was really what held this film together and what brought it so high up on my list. I mean, it's number five obviously, so I liked it a lot, but it was just a good, film and it was it was funny, it was sad, it was light, it was heavy, and uh it was just a good watch. I felt good after watching it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which
2: it, is hard to say when a lot of these movies don't. Yeah. In that
1: way. I, I think I would I would counter with the one point of Melissa McCarthy I feel her career is so uneven. Mm-hmm. She's, she's such mm-hmm. an out there personality and actor where she takes a lot of risks with the, some of the things that she does. But I find oftentimes it's more miss than hit, but that's- We know said, it's there
2: though. We know it's there.
1: Yes, she always has that lurking there of every time you hear a movie coming out with Melissa McCarthy, whether it's a comedy or drama, you're like, okay. This is either gonna be the best movie I'll see ever or is literally gonna be the going worst. Going to demand thing.
2: my money back.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and you know, we've seen it with in Bridesmaids in Spy, and Spy and her work in Gilmore Girls that she has it in her to be one of the best actors out there. And then this was definitely sort of an affirmation that she just has that innate talent that I don't know. Personally, I think it might be she needs the right director to sort of knows when to say, okay, I want it all. I want, I want the crazy. I want the balls to the wall. I want the ridiculous. I want the over the top. And then right when you get to that point, be like, okay, and now you need and to rein it, it in a little yeah. bit and keep this a little bit more grounded because she can do both separately and not, they could be bad each on their own, but when they're combined together and they're leveled out perfectly, it's great. And there's mm-hmm. some, some really touching moments. I think for me, the, the a memorable scene would be the date that she goes on with one of the, the bookstore owners and this whole date you go, wow, this is, this is going great. This is going fantastic. They're making a real connection. And then as soon as the date's over, you realize she just utterly sabotaged herself and you just like feel your heart sink through your chest yeah. into the floor. Yeah. And you're just like, Oh, why did she do that? <laughs> and, and it's just so heartbreaking to watch and it's such a subtle performance in that moment where you can just see everything crumbling in her life because she, she can't help but not sabotage yeah. her own life. Um, definitely one I really enjoyed as well. Uh, not quite an honorable mention, but if I was to do, uh, I believe like a, a top 25, I believe be it, would, it would be in there. Yeah. yeah. Um so my number 4 is the satire film Death of Stalin by Armando Iannucci. Most people probably know Iannucci as uh, either the the creator of Veep or the British series The Thick of It or the other film In the Loop which he was nominated for a writing Oscar for that a few years back. Uh this Film basically charts the power struggles in uh, the Soviet Union after Stalin dies. And everyone is trying to figure out what happens next because Stalin had such a literal iron grip on not only the country but everything around him that it didn't give people an opportunity to have a succession plan. And so when suddenly he dies... Everything is up in the air. Now, this movie is a comedy, and it's a hilarious comedy. You've got some fantastic performances by um, by, by Steve Buscemi and, and Jeffrey Tambor uh, and, and many other great comedic actors. But this movie is also kind of terrifying. This movie, if you remove a joke here or there instantly becomes a horror film in in the background of of every comedic element there are people being murdered or people fearing for their lives because they don't know what's going to happen or people being ripped from their homes to be thrown into prisons and everything that's going on like this this is a movie where you could have kept the cast the exact same um and just removed a couple jokes in this movie would have been a terrifying drama, and we'd all be praising Buscemi and Tambor and company and Jason Isaacs, uh, for their stunning dramatic performances. Which we we know all of these these actors that were cast definitely can bring as well. We've seen them in more dramatic performances, and so it's not far fetched to see them balance both of the the rope of both of both sides of that uh the, the same coin and, and there are some some really memorable moments whether it's the the recreation of uh the opera performance or the funeral performance where they're all standing around the casket arguing with each other while they're having people walk by or everyone trying to figure out who gets to hug his daughter first as a power play move everything about this movie is utterly ridiculous and works so well on so many levels and and Iannucci just crafted another home run it obviously helps if you know a bit about your uh, Russian Revolution history but if you don't I I still think there's enough there to, to really Capture your attention.
2: Yeah, it was a fun film for me. I enjoyed it as well. I feel like I need to go back and rewatch it because one, it's been a little longer. For me, it's not as uh current a current watch as some of my other films. And also it was late at night when I watched it, so I might have been a little tired. <laughs> so I need to go back and just to fully appreciate the, the comedic timing and, and the hilarity of it all.
1: Honestly, I just appreciate that they cast all these. American and British actors and told them to just use their regular voices. I know, no I know. one does a Russian accent in this film. Please
2: that needs to be something that's stopped. No one should fake accents anymore. Like this <laughs> No. <laughs> it
1: wor- it works for this, where you're not caught up in being like Steve Buscemi's not Russian, he his Russian accent isn't that great. You you don't even have to worry about that, which is nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what was your number four film?
2: Okay, my number four film is, uh, Shoplifters, which was from the director Hirokazu Koreeda? Koreeda. Koreeda. I said that the correctly. Um I thought this was just an endearing film. I really loved the family dynamics, family in quotation, because we're, it's kind of, each member is, we're not really entirely sure how they all fit into this family. And, um it's just a really, I found it a really intriguing, and. Eh, Film that make you think, and what I love the most is this is like a family that is struggling. They are shoplifters. They're they're all kind of crooks in their own way, just to get by because they're poor. But what I really appreciated was they didn't like self no self loathing. There was no like pitying me moment. They just were able to find the things that made them happy in life. And you could really see how each member, you know, connected with each other member and what made them happy and they just kind of enjoyed what they had. They're surrounded by all this, this junk in their tiny little home and, and it's just what brings them together and what keeps them together. And I really enjoyed the performances and the story and where it all went and just how we got to see a little, a little moment of each character of this family outside of, of their family dynamic, like whether they're at work or when they're out uh, alone doing their own kind of shoplifting, like pickpocketing sort of thing. The kids were great and you saw them together and what, how they were happy and, and they didn't have a lot, what they had was each other. And it was kind of deep in that sense. And it just, you're you can't help but feel happy when you're watching this family, even though they have hardships and there's, there's different things that they do that you might not necessarily be morally right. You know, taking in this girl that they find on the street, which they know she wasn't abandoned. She was just kind of being neglected, but they took her in because they wanted, they didn't have anything to give her themselves, but they figured they could give her something better than the life she had. And it was just a a film I really enjoyed. And that really resonated with me. So I, I had it at number
1: four. This was a film that I, I I quite enjoyed, but I didn't quite fully connect with it emotionally, and, and I kind of wish I did because it was getting so much praise. I, It just didn't all click for me. I spent a little too long, probably my own lack of intelligence, not being able to connect all the dots of what, how everyone is connected to each other. I spent too long thinking about that and I think that sort of took me out of the element. And the, the big reveals at the end and the emotional payoffs just didn't work as I me. Mean, that said, you know, there's some really great performances. And, and child actors are always sort of tough to degrade as far as the quality of their performances. But the two young kids in this film both do a phenomenal job sort of being both wise beyond their years and also incredibly naive and childlike mm-hmm. at the same time. They yeah. they do a good job sort of balancing the, those two personalities yeah which they're forced to do with the situation that they live in they both have to be the mature adults and need to also remember that they're still children
2: right
1: so we're going to take another uh quick break and we're going to listen to friend of the show curtis sindry making his first appearance on the podcast talking about his favorite film of last year
3: Hey, this is Curtis Sindri, the founder and editor-in-chief of Aesthetic Magazine. My favorite movie of 2018 is Game Night, the black comedy thriller starring Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams. The film revolves around a couple who are both competitive gamers who, upon a visit from Max, played by Jason Bateman's brother Brooks, played by Kyle Chandler, is thrown into a world of danger when Brooks reveals that he sells illegal items on the black market. The film expertly balances between pitch black comedy and thriller, and doesn't let up until the final act. Plus, the chemistry between the two leads is amazing. It's so believable and allows the film's premise to fully flourish. And if that's not enough, the film has a stacked supporting cast, featuring Billy Magnuson, who also starred in 2018's Underrated The Oath, Sharon Horgan, Jesse Plemons, Michael C. Hall, and Kyle Chandler. Do yourself a favor and watch Game Night. You won't regret it.
1: Game Night was a film that I loved. We're gonna to to talk about that more later, later on. Uh, it actually spent probably most of the year in my, in my top ten. And then as we were crossing off a lot of the Oscar nominated films, it unfortunately just fell outside my, my top ten. So it is one of my highest honorable mentions that we'll be talking about later. And one I am a, a huge fan of. And I, it's one, I'm glad I have Death of Stalin in, in my top ten. Because if I didn't have any comedies, I'd, I'd really regret it because fantastic comedies like Game Night don't come around very often and definitely deserve to be praised. Uh, so now we're gonna go into our top three. Uh, if I had better sound effects, I would say insert the drum roll now. <laughs> Stephanie, what is your number three film?
2: Okay, so my number three film has already been talked about. Uh, it is one that we share. It is Black Klansman. Spike is Black Klansman. Uh, so you've kind of talked about it uh, a bit there. So I won't go too in-depth as to why it is my number three. But it is high up. Um, I just thought this was, as you said, a hard-hitting, very powerful film. Some of the scenes and the way they were edited were great. I know uh, one of the the shots that everyone talks about is when they're at this... Um, not a rally. What would you call it? They're at this... Speaker, and it's kind of intercut with the faces of the audience, with the speech that's going on, and it just—it feels very kind of dreamlike, but it's—it's it's very powerful in the way that it hits you, and you can see everyone's emotions, and you can feel it rising up, and it, it's, it just leaves you with a great, great feeling of feelings in general, like no matter how you feel about it, like it just, it brings up something within you when you're watching it, which I think is amazing. And I think all great films make you feel something when, when you see a particular scene, it doesn't have to be a certain feeling, but just something that makes you think, but there's a lot of uncomfortable scenes in this film that make you wonder and sit with you and kind of make you face yourself and what you're dealing with in today's day. Like, as you said, this was set back. In 60s or 70s, but really, the stuff is still going on today, so it's very topical. And, uh, just great editing, and I, I mean, what else can be said? We We've both kind of talked about it. Performances are really good. I'm an Adam Driver fan, and now I'm a John David Washington fan, for sure. I'm interested to see some more, more stuff from him. And uh yeah, it is number 3. It it was my number 1 for a while. Uh but some two films came <laughs> and, and kicked kicked it out of the slot, which I'm very excited to get to. All
1: right, for for number 3 for me is the Polish film uh by director Paweł Pawlikowski, Cold War uh previously did Ida a couple years ago which was a, a beautiful story about a, a nun coming to terms with if she wants to make her final vows into the church or not um, and Pavlovsky once again does a great job dealing with uh black and white film um, talking about these sort of not necessarily two star-crossed lovers but two lovers who approach the world that they live in very differently. They are, um, uh, I, want to say, uh, they're, they're Polish. They're both Polish because the director is Polish, obviously. Um, and it's during the iron curtain and Poland is about to kind of be sucked up into the, uh, expanding USSR, uh, post-World War II. And, uh, they're involved, they're both involved in this musical troupe, Uh, that, uh, the gentleman has helped spearhead and she is a singer in this group and dancer and he decides to try to make a break out of the iron curtain and tries to take her with him. Unfortunately, she doesn't. And they end up sort of separating but then a couple of years down the road, they're in the same country again in Europe, and they rekindled the romance. And unfortunately, it wasn't meant to be, so they're separated again. And this movie sort of keeps going on and on of not necessarily will they or won't they, but understanding obstacles that the real world will sometimes place in front of us and how we deal with these obstacles as human beings. And despite whatever emotional connections we might have with other people, sometimes you're going to approach a situation differently from someone else that you care about. And how does this affect the way you live your life and the way you present yourself and the memories and baggage that you carry on. How do you deal with all of that? And this movie very deftly sort of weaves back and forth both of these people's motivations and where they stand and and how they sort of get through living in not-so-glamorous parts of Europe during not-so-glamorous times, uh of the, the past century and they do a great job and everything sort of comes to a head and the final scene that I, I do not want to spoil but was one that hit me very hard and, and just thinking about it, it sort of makes me feel emotional and it's just a beautiful, gorgeous love story of a film. It is apparently inspired by the director's parents. Obviously this is a situation where it didn't play out exactly the way his parents' relationship did, but there are definitely elements where he mined their love story for his, uh, for his own devices and was able to tell something so unique.
2: Yeah. Absolutely gorgeous film. This is not my first cinematography, was it not? It was, yes. Yeah. So beautiful to watch. Um, so many great little scenes. Yeah. The ending was I mean, There's a, there's a particular line at the end, which kind of just, Nails, you know, just drives the nail, the final nail into that and i are just like, well okay, wow. Uh, for me anyway, but I won't get into it. Uh, this actually, this movie didn't make my list, it's, it should be an honorable mention because actually it does have one of my favorite scenes of the year, just the way it was shot, where it takes place there in this big giant hall and everyone's kind of enjoying themselves and there's like a dancing going on and it's just filled with people. And I believe the two of them are, are just standing there and this other gentleman comes up and starts talking to them. And you can hear his his uh, dialogue happening and you can see their faces, the cameras on them. And you then realize that actually they're standing in front of a giant mirror, like mirrored wall. And all the people you thought were behind them are actually in front of them. And for, for some reason that... That scene alone in that movie really stood out to me and really sat with me. And it's something that I just really enjoyed visually and was like, wow, that's brilliant. I really liked the the different direction they went with that. So I also enjoyed it. Unfortunately, I didn't make my top ten, but would be up there for sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, what is your number two film?
2: Okay, number two film. Again, something that's already been mentioned. You keep stealing my thunder. <laughs> um, this was a movie that I had literally... No interest in watching. Uh we were together when we watched this film and it was just one that was still left on our list that we had to watch for. You the went Oscars. in still
1: skeptical. So I
2: was like, fine, I'll watch it. Um it's minding the gap. Uh what little I knew about this film that it was about skateboarding. That's what I went into knowing <laughs> about that. Man was I wrong. And man was I wrong about my ideals about skateboarding. I was like, wow, that's boring. Like I don't wanna see that. But the skateboarding shots in this film were beautiful and breathtaking and such a good release from the heavy topics that this film was actually about. As you mentioned, abuse and dealing with different domestic abuse abuse, and, and your, your feelings growing up and your friendships. But, like, it really made you understand why this was such an escape for them from all this turmoil and all this hardship and just watching the scenes of them on their skateboards and skateboarding through the town and through the parking lots and different areas that they skated you got this like calm you needed that release you needed that just it was quiet and serene and brought you to a different place where you just were able to connect with them and be like I get it like I know why this is so important to you and and to me that was really eye opening cuz I was like Skateboarding is so dumb. I don't understand why people like care about it. Oh, I'm so turned around, and I'm like, I'll preach, preach about it. Like, <laughs> so, so good. Again, this is another one that made me cry, but because I was like, the care. I don't I hate calling them characters, because they're real life people. Mm-hmm. But hearing their stories, and at, at one point with this, this one. This one friend, you're like on his side, and then you're like, wow, he's kind of a jerk. You're like I'm not really on his side, but then you learn more about him, and you're like, wow, I don't really feel for him, and you're rooting for him, and you're just like torn, and you're bringing, you're brought back and forth, and this the the friend dynamics between the three of these guys, like you just you you feel for them, you root for them, you want to give them big giant hugs, but you also just like I don't know, it it really really s- stuck with me and. I just, I just really enjoyed it. I mean, I don't want to go, I don't want to start gushing, but it was super good, and um, the editing, like you said, was brilliant. And I love the subject matter and how how it was brought to you as a viewer. I really appreciated that it wasn't just, it wasn't as heavy because I thought the interspersing of skateboarding was really what what made you think and what made you understand what they were going through and how they were dealing with it. So I thought it was just beautiful.
1: I think what's probably most interesting is in the last few years, I think society as a whole has sort of under started to understand, especially things like mental health, the person that you you, when you draw an imaginary picture in your head of someone suffering from depression or anxiety or or things like that, isn't really... The person that is suffering from those things. Mm -hmm. A lot of times people are silently suffering people that you're close with and you just never realize. And I think the same thing sort of goes for this, the idea of people who are are, are victims of abuse and, and survivors of abuse. You have a certain mental image, especially when you're talking about, uh, lower class neighborhoods, um, people more at risk. And I think this film kind of you know, spins that on your head once again, and the ideas of what you thought uh, an abuse victim should look like right. isn't really what it actually yeah. looks like. Yeah, And so it does a really good job, sort of making you reconsider people's situations, and, and it's a great way to kind of start a dialogue of trying to understand the issues that that people, both victims have, and understanding where cycles of abuse happen and how they sort of happen. Uh, And I I think it it does a really good job of, of bringing that to the forefront. Uh, Unfortunately, I'm going to, I'm going to talk a bit more about something that's going to steal your thunder. My number two film is the Lebanese film Capernaum. Uh, This movie was so, Fascinating to watch it's it's one that you you couldn't help but just absolutely fall in love with with everything that is is going on in this world. Uh, it actually kind of pairs quite nicely with shoplifters that would probably make a really good double bill. You both have these families on the outskirts of society who are outcasts. And don't really belong in doing their best to sort of make their way with the limited resources, uh, and abilities that they have. One thing that they do have in spades is street smarts. And this film centers around a young, uh, I want to say a 11 or 12 year old boy. Who the movie starts off with, we learn that he is trying to basically emancipate himself from his parents and sue them for bringing him into this world when they were clearly aware that they are unfit to be parents. We later learn that they have probably about six or seven different kids, um, and and that is why he's suing them because not only were they unready for their eldest son, they are clearly unready to have, not ready to have multiple other kids and describing this movie. It doesn't sound like a comedy. It's not really a comedy, but this idea of this kid who has to run away from home after he's worried that his younger sister has been sold into an arranged marriage, um, but to the parents, landlord, uh, and He's on the run and he befriends this woman who is a refugee who he has to take care of her baby after she goes missing. None of this sounds funny, but there is so much humor and heart to everything that this does. And frankly, just watching this... 11 year old kids swear like a sailor is kind of worth the price mm-hmm. of a mission on its own because like normally you get a little incredulous when you see little kids swearing a lot it can sometimes be used as a bit of a crutch in comedy. Uh, every time, you know, he, he tells someone to F off and calls them whatever terrible names he can come up with in his 11, little 11 year old brain. Every time it's hilarious. Um, there, this film is definitely very moving and very sad and tragic at certain points, but it's got such a life to it that you can't help but be exhilarated by everything that's happening and want the best for this little boy. And shockingly, almost everyone in this movie is a non-actor, and the performances that they get in it is just stunning. Um and so I I think that's all I have to say about it. Is there anything you have to say about this movie?
2: <laughs> is there anything I have to say about this movie? Wow, what a loaded question. <laughs> um, okay, Dakota, I have to prepare you. Um, I said I didn't want to gush about Minding the Gap. I'm about to gush about Capernaum. It is my number one film of last year. And I will say that there's so much I want to say about this film that I don't even know where to start and how I'm going to even say it all. And I probably won't even say it all. But... uh the performance from Zane uh, Rafael I want to say uh is how to pronounce his name I'm not sure was just phenomenal he's now my like new favorite actor of all time <laughs> so brilliant this film made me feel so many different things but i was on this boy's side from the get go and just the 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 character development and the arc that it takes you on and the way that the story is told, you're it's, it's all, it's not really a flashback, but it's, it's him in court, almost kind of saying why he's suing his parents. And then we're shown these things that he's saying and why he's been brought to this point. And I just love the way that that was shown kind of not in chronological order. And it was just, I can't, I, I will, say this to anyone everyone I see whether I know that they'd like it or not I'm like oh you should watch this foreign film it's amazing it's the best Cameron's so good but I can't I can't even describe why I liked it so much we had watched so many Oscar films together and the previous weekend we had watched the shorts the live-action shorts which were so heavy to me and so
1: they're underwhelming too
2: They just were just like topics, the topics that they were about and the things that happened in them, like for some reason stuck with me and brought me to kind of a weird place in my head. So when I saw this film that was like equally traumatizing, if you were in that situation, equally heavy, but the way that it was brought and made you feel and there were light moments and there were funny moments and there were deep moments. It just left me feeling even though it was heavy, it left me feeling like there was something positive that I could take from it. And so, I don't know. I, I don't know why I like this movie so much. It was just my favorite film. The performances were so good. I thought the direction was good. And I definitely want to go back and watch some movies from Nadine Labaki. I it? believe that's how
1: you pronounce it, yes.
2: Uh, her, her filmography, because I'm definitely interested to see what she's done in the past. Because I just love the story, the way the story was told and and how like raw the story was and the characters and just how like deeply emotional it all seemed. The connections and the chemistries that, that Zane had with his sister. Like was so heartwarming and so like heartbreaking when you f- you find out about her like ending and, and the way that she's torn from the family and from his life, and the different storylines that come from all the different angles and the 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 woman that he befriends and how he's taking care of her child while she's at work and it's just I don't know I just thought it was a beautiful film I thought it was brilliantly told and yeah. It was number number one on my list and number three. That made me cry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it is definitely a great film, and I do wholly recommend it for everyone. Uh, we're going to listen to our last voicemail now, coming from frequent guest on this show, Sammy Felchenfeld, as he talks about his number one film of last year.
3: This is Sammy Felchenfeld, my favorite movie of 2018 was Roma. Uh, it was made by one of my favorite directors, Alfonso
1: Cuarón. But all that aside, it was uh, beautifully directed, expertly shot, amazingly edited—just a really well put together movie. Uh, masterful use of sound, and even though it's a Netflix movie, um, best appreciated on the big screen for sure, uh, and well deserving a lot of, of a lot of accolades. But especially to see appreciation for a film that wasn't part of the Hollywood system um is really meaningful as well. Just all around a great film and something that's gonna be remembered for a long time. Now, as you might have guessed, based on the way things are leading up, Sammy's favorite film was Roma. My number one film was also Roma. This is a movie actually Sammy and I went and saw it together. Um we talked at the start of this show about Netflix movies, whether they're you don't really know what you're gonna get if it's gonna be good or great or bad or Whatever on the spectrum it's going to be with Outlaw King, one that you quite enjoyed. Roma was one that I also really enjoyed. As soon as we knew this was coming out in theaters as well, Sammy made sure that we we scheduled a date to go see it. It was on gorgeous 4K in their big auditorium at TIFF, and and everything about this movie was stunning. And I sort of feel, based on the way I maybe talked about on people that saw it in theaters versus people that saw it at home on Netflix, I I really think it made the difference seeing it in theaters. This movie is a very subtle film. A lot of it revolves around sound design. And unless you're in a large theater with a fantastic sound system, you might not experience it the same way. It was one that was so moving for me. But also you see Quran's fantastic direction in just about everything. Sometimes I'll forget about how much I enjoyed it. But then I'll, I'll see parts of it either in the trailer or I'm remembered in it by photos. And whether it is the infamous uh birthing scene, which is so moving uh and, and in a very sad way. Or when the street riots are going on, when Cleo is shopping for furniture and there's this gorgeous 360 pan that goes on, uh, showing the riots outside to then the furniture store being attacked and so many interesting things. Or, you know, one of the, 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 the two main, uh, bookended pieces of, uh, the family's car. You, you first see the husband when he comes home and takes such pride with this car in this very narrow driveway and, you know, very carefully doesn't hit the wall on either side of it. And after he leaves, the family abandons them. The wife then driving the same car drives in and basically rams it against the wall and sparks are flying and your ears are cringing because you're healing hearing metal scrape against brick and it's just like oh they bookend each other so nicely um everything about this film i thought was so calculated and and filled with so much history history that frankly most viewers will just never be able to understand you're going to be able to know a bit if you're familiar with your geopolitics of 1970s Mexico, um, which if you're not like I wasn't in a lot of the world, probably isn't. You're not really filled in on anything that's actually happening. And that being combined with it being such a personal story about Quoran's own family's, uh, live-in maids that you can't help but wonder everything that's happening and and you're questioning so much about what's going on and how much is is ripped actually from his family's memories and and how much of it did Koran just sort of invent to create these characters and and you're left with so many beautiful imagery, so much beautiful imagery and you can't help but fall in love with it I know it's not a movie for everyone but I'm so happy that this film won Best Picture at this year's Oscars. Did it? Wait, it didn't? What one Best Picture?
2: Uh, we won't talk about that.
1: Creep? No, you know what? I think they just decided not to award a Best Picture Oscar this year because clearly if they did, it would have gone to Roma. Um mm.
2: I might an
1: <laughs> <laughs> So this was my favorite movie of the year. I'm not going to wax on forever. A lot of people have seen this and have their own thoughts and feelings about it. Samuel was able to also articulate what was so great about this film. And, and so uh, I'll sort of leave it as that. I know you weren't as crazy about it as, as the rest of us were. Samuel and I specifically were.
2: <laughs> I love
1: you said the rest of us. Like the lone <laughs> hater. You're not, you not the lone hater of this movie. <laughs> and I wouldn't classify why you was a hater no, I
2: wouldn't film. either. I'm I'm not a hater. I'm just not a lover of this film. And I this one I will be apologetic for. I'm sorry that I don't love this film and how like everyone just is falling over themselves to talk about Roma and the greatness <laughs> and that that Roma is. But I'm it. It was too quiet of a film for me. Too calculated of a film for me. There, I just didn't connect with it um, on the same level. Uh, I will definitely agree that there are some great scenes and great shots. Though my favorite scene was when she was shopping for baby furniture and the riots happened. But there's some great like other scenes that happen with the forest fire that happens, mm. and just the, the the quietness that happens there while it's all happening was amazing to me. Um, the other climatic scenes, we'll call them, if you will.
1: (laughs) She's doing air quotes for those (laughs) Um, of us that can't see
2: it. You can hear it in my voice. (laughs) Uh, they just weren't enough for me. I didn't, I, I, I don't know. I didn't connect with this film. Like I said, if there, if there was one saving grace, it would be, uh, Marina de Tavaria's, uh, performance of the mother, uh, of the house. I thought her, her performance was deep. And had depth to it, and i i really i don 't know liked her performance and her portrayal of, of a mother who's 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 been left by her husband and has to, has to deal with her kids and has to deal with what everything else she 's got going on. You can feel her anger, you can feel her joy, you can feel everything that 's going on, whether through her actions, through her face, through her parking a car <laughs> uh that I really did enjoy, uh but the rest of the film fell a little flat and bland for me and I, I i'm sorry i can't say that i loved it or enjoyed it as much as as everyone else and it doesn't even make my honorable mention list oh. apologies
1: well when Sammy hears this, I'm sure he's just going to be utterly devastated. We've had this. this
2: conversation. <laughs> he understands. All
1: right. You talked about some honorable mentions. Let's talk about some honorable mentions. What came so close to making your top ten, but you just could not squeeze it in?
2: Okay. So we've, we've actually talked about a lot of the films that made my honorable mentions, Uh like First Reform with Ethan Hawke's per, uh, performance and I said it feels like a scary movie. It's not a, a traditional horror movie, but it, it had that feeling for me. And that's why I enjoyed it so much that it could feel like a different genre than it actually was. Um, another one that almost made my list was Game Night that was talked about by Curtis. Funny film, great script, great performances, great chemistry, um, and just all around fun and entertaining. So loved it. Wish I could have squeaked it on there. But there was just two many other good films. Uh Cold War we talked about great cinematography. Um just beautiful film all around. Really enjoyed it and like I feel guilty about this one not making my list. I really do. Uh especially since I love foreign films and wish I could have put it on there. And there's probably some some movies on my list that don't deserve it as much as Cold War, but since this is my top 10, it didn't make it. Sorry. Hmm. Apologies. Um and then uh Free Solo was also another movie that uh I didn't I had very little interest in. This was like a, a weird year for me where all the movies that I didn't really care about ended up being really good. So maybe I do need to see Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse cuz <laughs> who knows maybe it was number 1 and I just don't know it doubt it. But anyway, uh <laughs> Free Solo uh, was really intense, really interesting. I didn't connect um, what was his name? The, the Alex Hannell. I didn't connect with him personally on, on a level didn't understand why he was doing it, why it was so important to him. Obviously that, that doesn't matter, but the, the intensity of this film and watching him climb this, uh, El Capitan was quite a feat and like hard to watch at times because you were holding your breath. You almost had to take a, a minute just to, to breathe in and breathe out because not only with him climbing, but just the realities that happen with, with these people who do free soloing, uh, is quite amazing and quite, quite spectacular. And, uh, I just thought it was filmed really well and, uh, it's just a really interesting film and it's one that doesn't, didn't make my top ten but is one that I keep recommending to people. So maybe I'm, my top 10 is just all wrong, who
1: knows. <laughs> um, uh, Uh, For my honorable mentions, three that made your list, Isle of Dogs, Outlaw, King, and The Favorite, I I kind of chimed in on each of those. Those were all ones I I really enjoyed. Um, First Man was one that I I really liked, and after I saw it, it immediately was in my top ten, but it was one that just didn't stick with me as long-term. You know, when I talk about it and I, I see stuff from it, I'm reminded of why I really enjoyed it, but it didn't have that sort of staying power that could have uh launched it into my top 10. Oh,
2: I saw what you did
1: there. <laughs> um, Game night was also one I really loved. Uh The documentary, three identical strangers about the loss triplets that were separated at birth and found themselves. And the f- this documentary kind of gets crazier and crazier as it goes on. Definitely one that's best watching with knowing as little as possible about it. Um, there was a couple of other ones that that you had mentioned as well they, this was This was an interesting year for movies overall, I'm not going to look back and be like, yeah twenty eighteen was one of the better years for movies. That said, there were some really fantastic things, but I think overall I was kind of disappointed by a lot of things. I just sort of liked a lot. I didn't really love a lot of things that came out this year. I
2: think if there's a lesson to be learned about 2018, it's watch more foreign films.
1: Well, I was the one that made my number one, two, and three all foreign films.
2: Yeah, and my I have a lot of foreign films also. Honorable mentions, and on my top ten I have two foreign films, with one being number one. So... Or just watch Capernaum. Like, that should be the rule of 2018 film. I'm sorry.
1: There you go. Stephanie's number one and my number two. Go watch Capernaum. Um, thank you so much for, for listening. If you made it all the way to the end, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you to Sean, Scott, Curtis, and Sammy for all providing their insight of what their number one film of the year was. Uh Thank you very much, Stephanie, for, for joining me on this big adventure. Sure, uh, it, it was a lot of fun having you on this.
2: Thanks so much. Yeah, it was, it was great to spend some time at work figuring out my top 10.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, go to liveandlimbo.com or you can check out the show notes. We're going to have our full top 10 listed along with everything else we talked about. Um, and make sure you follow the show on Twitter at ContraZoomPod. You can also follow me on Twitter at DGAPA. Thank you so much for listening and bring on the 2019 films.